0: Good morning, people of God, brothers and sisters in Christ. What a privilege it is, a joy it is to gather again each week. We get to gather like this, to bring praises to our God, to study His Word, to be together, to fellowship, to encourage one another. And I pray that that's what you're here to do. Uh, Not just to receive from the Lord, but to be used by the Lord. Uh, We were thinking about that and praying about that in the room here to to the side as um, we were preparing to come out this morning. and uh, I was just thinking in my prayer about how all that we do within the household of God, within Christ's church, is out of love for our brothers and sisters in Christ. And so I pray that that love fills your heart this morning and that you truly do desire to be used by God as we fellowship together. If you would, please go with me in your Bibles to Exodus Chapter 24, verses 1 to 18, that's where we'll be this morning. Exodus 24, verses 1 to 18. One of the most important things that we learn about God from Scripture is that He is faithful. God is faithful. This is one of the attributes that we most treasure about the lord my mom's favorite song is great is thy faithfulness and that may be a song that you uh, quite love it reminds us of who god is and it just brings us such comfort we take great delight in confessing what we read in lamentations chapter 3 verses 22 to 23 <clears throat> the steadfast love of the lord never ceases his mercies never come to an end they are new every morning, and then here's the capstone piece, great is your faithfulness. We take great delight in confessing that, and it brings us great comfort to declare with the Apostle Paul in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 3, that the Lord is faithful. And I would say to us this morning that this is the one great stress reliever. Uh, we all have stress of different kinds. We all have moments of of acute stress. We have just the general stresses of life living in a fallen world. Uh, We go through life and we have moments of, times of, stress. It is something that we have to deal with in this fallen world. And I would submit to all of us this morning that God's faithfulness is the one great stress reliever. And in fact, it is God's providence plus his faithfulness that brings us such peace. You could say providence plus faithfulness equals peace. That we have peace and we have rest in our lives. It's not just that God is providential, that he's in control, that he's sovereign, that he's over every speck of dust, every action, that he is in control over everything. It's not just that that brings us joy and delight and comfort because that alone tells us nothing about God's disposition towards us. But when we read that this providence, this supremacy over all reality is combined with his faithful love, we rejoice. And we have peace knowing that God is always present in any moment of stress. And throughout life, God is always present and he is always present faithful. And that's where we get to his immutability, that God never changes. He doesn't change in his faithfulness. He's not faithful on Monday and then a a little faithful on Tuesday, non-faithful on Wednesday. He's faithful all the time. We can rely on him entirely. But in order to really understand what it means to say that God is faithful, we have to trace it back to the idea of covenant. Well, maybe for you that's just kind of a fancy Bible word and you're like, okay, what well, faithfulness, yeah, I can get around that. Uh, I, I like that idea. That's very applicable and obvious and clear to me. But, but then covenant, that sounds kind of heady and academic and, and sort of uh, like biblical jargon. But it is central to understanding what it means when we say that God is faithful. We have to trace it back to the idea of covenant. God's faithfulness is means that he keeps his promise. In other words, it means that he keeps covenant. God keeps covenant. He is a covenant-making and a covenant-keeping God. And this was one of the big themes that we constantly encountered as we went through Genesis as a church several years ago. And you, you may remember that. It's, it's indelibly marked on my brain forever. That was... Uh, Uh, Such an incredible time for me personally, uh, going through the book of Genesis uh, as a preacher, as as I was walking through the different parts of the book. But uh, maybe you've come since we've done that. But maybe in the deep recesses of your mind, if you were here back then, you remember as we walked alongside of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, how we were constantly dealing with this idea that God makes covenant and he keeps covenant covenant. And as we've seen, the entire book of Exodus is built on God's covenant keeping faithfulness. Why am I saying that? Well, we have to go back all the way to chapter 2. Exodus chapter 2, before all the narrative that we've read, before uh, the plagues and before the parting of the sea and the bringing of the people through the wilderness, bringing them to Mount Sinai and the giving of the law, all that we've encountered in Exodus, it all traces back to these words in Exodus 2, verses 23 to 25. During those many days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. And listen to these words. And God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant. Now, let me say this, that's not to say that God had forgotten his covenant and he needed his memory jogged so that he could remember what he had promised Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It is to say that at this moment, God intends to act decisively. It is time for God to act in accordance with what has always been present. God is going to relieve his people. He's going to rescue them. He's going to deliver them. He's going to bring them out of slavery. But it goes on to say God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel and God knew. Today we come to one of those major covenant passages in the pages of Scripture where God ratifies his covenant with Israel, where he confirms and seals this relationship. So this is actually a really important passage in the history of redemption. As you're trying to fit the Bible together and you're thinking through what are the the, the key moments in the storyline of God's great story of redeeming his people, what we're looking at today is central. The title for the sermon this morning is The God of Israel and it is taken from the words of the passage itself in verse 10 where it says this, Then Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, And 70 of the elders of Israel went up and they saw the God of Israel. God has just given the terms of the covenant. He has given his people the Ten Commandments. And then he has delivered to Moses the message of the book of the covenant. God has given his law. We've just been reading for all of these weeks. We've been in the law. As I've said, we've been to, been to law school. Over all of these weeks, we've been looking at God's law. God has been giving his law. And another way to say that is that God has been giving his covenant stipulations. These are the demands of the Lord upon his people as he gives them this covenant, as he enters into covenant, as he extends this covenant invitation. And now, based on acceptance of those stipulations, God declares himself to be the God of Israel, calling his people into union with him as he ratifies the covenant. So that's what we're going to look at today. So if you would go ahead and stand with me as we read God's word together Exodus 24. And we'll be covering the whole chapter, Exodus 24, verses 1 to 18. This is the Word of God. By the way, I always say this, this is the most important part of the sermon, right, when we read God's Word. So this is not the time to glaze over, check out, and then kind of come back in uh, later. But this is the most important part because we are here to hear God speak. So let's listen. Exodus 24, then he said to Moses, Come up to the Lord, come up to Yahweh, you and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu and 70 of the elders of Israel and worship from afar. Moses alone shall come near to Yahweh, but the others shall not come near, and the people shall not come up with him. (coughs) Verse 3, Moses came and told the people, All the words of the Lord and all the rules. And all the people answered with one voice and said, All the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. He rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain. And twelve pillars according to the twelve tribes of Israel. Bringing the people back, reminding them of their roots and going back to that covenant. God made with the patriarchs. Verse 5, And he sent young men of the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to Yahweh. And Moses took half of the blood and put it in the basins. And half of the blood he threw against the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, All that the Lord has spoken we will do and we will be obedient. And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, Behold the blood of the covenant that Yahweh has made with you in accordance with all these words. Then Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu and seventy of the elders of Israel went up, and they saw the God of Israel. Though There was under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone, like the very heaven for clearness. And by the way, sapphire there is probably, uh, to be understood, lapis lazuli, which is a, a very important stone in the ancient world, very beautiful and, and blue. Verse 11, And he did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. They beheld God and ate and drank. The Lord said to Moses, Come up to me on the mountain and wait there, that I may give you the tablets of stone with the law and the commandment which I have written for their instruction." So Moses rose with his assistant Joshua, and Moses went up into the mountain of God. And he said to the elders, Wait here for us until we return to you. And behold, Aaron and Hur are with you. Whoever has a dispute, let him go to them. Then Moses went up on the mountain, and the cloud covered the mountain. The glory of Yahweh dwelt on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it six days. And on the seventh day he called to Moses out of the midst of the cloud, Now the appearance of the glory of Yahweh was like a devouring fire on the top of the mountain in the sight of the people of Israel. Moses entered the cloud and went up on the mountain, and Moses was on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. You can go ahead and be seated. What a crucial passage as we look at the storyline of the Bible, as we look at the history of God's people specifically at the Old Testament. So let's pray and let's ask for God's blessing as He uh, asks Him to give us clarity on this passage and to apply it to each of our hearts by His Spirit. Father, we are entirely dependent upon You as we worship You. Lord, even our worship to You is born by You. It is carried along by You. Just as we think about Ephesians 2.10, that uh, we are your workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which you prepared beforehand that we should walk in them that even the good works of of right worship of of praise from a pure heart come from you and are preordained by you so god we have absolutely nothing to boast about this morning not a single Thing in our lives we have to boast about, to be proud of ourselves about, Father. All is from your grace. And so we are entirely dependent upon you this morning as we praise your holy name, as we draw near to you in faith, and as we ask you to minister to each of our hearts, to convict us, as Dennis prayed earlier, to convict us, to encourage us, to strengthen us, to bring joy in all of our circumstances in all the trials that we face, that we would shine like stars in this world as we rejoice in hope in the gospel. Father, we thank you for this time of instruction. We ask your blessing on it. We pray for clarity in the teaching and that you would uh, glue all of our minds to your word, Lord. Protect us from straying thoughts. Uh, Protect our minds from uh, laziness, Lord, but help us to strap in and to worship you through the hard work of listening well. We ask for your grace in this, and we pray it in Jesus' name, amen. So two things to look at this morning as we come to this chapter, uh, and here they are, you'll see them on the screen. So first, confirmation of the covenant relationship. That's what we get in verses one to eight. And then communion with the covenant Lord in verses nine to 18. And what we'll see as we move into this meal is we'll see that it's really still a part of the confirmation of the covenant relationship. So there is bleeding together here, but these really are the two big ideas as we think about God uniting himself with Israel in covenant and the ratification of that covenant as God declares himself to be the God of Israel. So first, (coughs) let's look at confirmation of the covenant relationship. And yes, we're going to reread verses 1 to 8, so we're going to put a A spotlight over those verses. So look with me again at these precious words from the Lord. Then he said to Moses, Come up to Yahweh, you and Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel, and worship from afar. Moses alone shall come near to Yahweh, but the others shall not come near, and the people shall not come up with him. Moses came and told the people all the words of Yahweh and all the rules. And all the people answered with one voice and said, All the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses wrote down all the words of Yahweh. He rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and twelve pillars according to the twelve tribes of Israel. And he sent young men of the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to Yahweh. And Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins and half of the blood he threw against the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, All that the Lord has spoken we will do, and we will be obedient. And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, Behold the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. At this point in our walk through Exodus, you may have lost sight of the narrative That's easy to do because we've been in uh, this legal material, and so it could be that the narrative of Exodus, what's happening frame by frame by frame, has sort of gone from your mind, and this brings us back into the narrative of the book as a whole. We've been with Moses on the mountain as he receives more laws from the Lord, the book of the covenant the outworking of the Ten Commandments in everyday life. We've talked about how uh, the, the God gives the Ten Commandments and all of God's law hangs on these commandments. And I would say that it's not just the moral law in view there, but all of the sacrificial system, all of the laws, hang on the Ten Commandments. Even the, as we think about the first two commandments, all that God would instruct his people to do in the sacrificial system would be enveloped under those first two and even those first three Commandments. And so God gives the Ten Commandments, and then as an outworking of that, as, a, as a, a concreteness of that, he gives the book of the covenant with all of the scenarios and cases in which the Ten Commandments would be applied. All the legal material that we've been reading in chapters 21 to 23 has been delivered to Moses on the mountain. God gives the Ten Commandments audibly to everyone beginning at the beginning of chapter 20. So uh, it's not Moses who just receives the Ten Commandments. God gives the Ten Commandments to all of Israel, to all of the people audibly. The people, out of fear, plead with Moses to talk to God on their behalf. That's at the end of chapter 20. Moses goes back up the mountain to receive more laws or rules or judgments And that's what we've been looking at in chapters 21 to 23. So we finished that last week. Those rules or judgments that God gives Moses on the mountain, that ends at the end of chapter 23. Now, as we pick up in chapter 24, Moses comes back down the mountain to the people. Uh, Moses is quite old at this point, so he's going up and down that mountain uh, constantly. We've been seeing that as we see, Mo, we'll talk about Moses as mediator as we come to the end of the, of the service, but uh, we have this movement back and forth for Moses. In verses 1 to 2, God gives instructions for how to return to the mountain, so Moses is not staying on the ground, he's going to go back up again, and in these first two verses we get those instructions, and we'll come back to that in a little bit with the second point. But now I want to draw your attention into verse three. In verse three, Moses goes to communicate with the people. He tells the people what God has told him. He delivers the message. He lays out the covenant stipulations. And as I was, I, was, I was running yesterday, and this popped into my head, I hadn't thought of this before, that this is very similar to what Jesus tells his disciples, that, that God would bring to their remembrance what he had said. The disciples aren't you know, furiously sitting around scribbling down everything that Jesus says. Like, I got to make sure that I keep this because I'm going to pull it out later when I compile my gospel. The Holy Spirit brings to the minds of the disciples what Jesus had said so that they are able to record that in The Gospels. And I think it's interesting here that Moses comes down. We have no uh, reference to him writing anything yet. He comes down and he conveys to the people what God had said. And we've been in Exodus long enough to know that it's not important that you just get the gist, right? It's not that you just need to get the general idea. What's the main point, Yahweh? No. Every word from the Lord conveyed to the people by Moses. So he tells the people what God had told him. He delivers the message. He lays out the stipulations. And what do the people do? They accept. This is the binding union between God and his people. They accept what the Lord has laid out through Moses. Verse 3, Moses came and told the people, All the words of the Lord and all the rules, and all the people answered with one voice and said, All the words that Yahweh has spoken, we will do. You see their emphasis on all the words. It's important that everything that God has said be there given to the people. And this goes back to chapter 19 where the same thing occurred, but before the giving of the law. So God invites his people into union with himself before he gives the law, and then he ratifies that and seals that after he gives the law. So if we go back to chapter 19, verse 8, all the people answered together and said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses reported the words of the people to the Lord. So I want to just take a step back from this for a moment. And consider this one observation. Entering into covenant with God begins with an embrace of his word. Do you notice that? The people are entering into covenant relationship with God. And where does it start? What's the first thing, the first act, the first disposition of the people as God invites them into covenant with himself? It is an embrace of God's word. This is where conversion begins. Faith comes by hearing. Paul says in Romans 10, and hearing by the word of Christ. The word of God goes out. The word of God goes out like a seed, as Jesus describes it in the parable of the sower. It goes out like a seed, and there must be the embrace of that word deep into the soul, which naturally bears fruit. And that's what we get in the parable of The sower, the first three soils, do not embrace the word truly. The first soil doesn't embrace it at all. And then we get the second and the third, and it is embraced only for a short time. Not with true commitment, not with true worship, not with true love of the Lord, not with true trust in the Lord, and they fall away. But it is the fourth soil... In the parable of the sower where the word as it goes out is truly embraced and the way you know it has been embraced is that it bears fruit as it most certainly will. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 verse 13 gives us this same picture. And we also thank God constantly for this that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, so this is Paul uh, writing to the Thessalonians, when you received the word of God, <coughs> which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. It is so interesting that we have this thing called liberal Christianity uh, I agree with J. Gresham Machen as he writes at the beginning of the 20th century that really it's a different religion, right? This this notion of progressive or liberal Christianity that walks away from the authority of God's word, the binding authority, the inerrancy and the infallibility of God's word is no Christianity at all. If If we don't have God's word as the base, what do we even have? And if God's word is not there, and God's word is not embraced in faith, how can we presume to have a covenant with the God who speaks? Moses' communication with the people is then followed by a series of rapid-fire actions that are meant to confirm and seal the covenant between Yahweh and Israel. So Moses comes down, he delivers the message, but then we get a series of of fast-moving actions That Moses takes. So I'm going to go through these quickly. He writes all the words down. They do need to be recorded. And praise God for that because isn't it amazing that what we're reading right now this morning is the product of that very day when Moses wrote this down. So from that time until now, 3,500 years later, these words have been copied faithfully. Copied. Faithfully, and if you have questions about the faithfulness of those copy of the copying, you'll know, go and look at the Dead Sea Scrolls. As you think about the the Isaiah text of the Dead Sea Scrolls, and then the later Masoretic text as it came through a thousand years after Christ, and the way in which when those Dead Sea scrolls were to, were recovered, how closely they were, and how close they were in terms of the wording. These things have been faithfully copied throughout the centuries. Thirty five hundred. Years And here we are, 21st century, just taking it for granted, all of us, and here we are reading these words which Moses wrote down that very day. He rises early and builds an altar along with 12 pillars representing the 12 tribes of Israel. He commissions young men to offer burnt offerings denoting atonement and total consecration and to sacrifice peace offerings, indicating fellowship with Yahweh. He throws some of the blood against the altar, reads the written book of the covenant for a second ascent by the people, all that God has said we will do, and then he throws blood on them as well. Blood stains all over their clothes. Takes a long time to get that out. The smell of that's there. Maybe some of that blood doesn't come out of their clothes. What a vivid picture. What a visual with a lasting Effect. He throws blood all over the people. What an incredible picture. The words of verse 8 are crucial and they demand our special attention. It says there, And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, Behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. Notice the blood. And the book. I've said this before, but I remember years ago when I was a youth pastor and some of the older high school students would would be going off to college. And one of the things I said to them uh, as they were thinking about finding a new church is, is I would say, when you go to a new church, look for three things. Look for the book, the blood, and the birth. An emphasis on the blood of Christ, the gospel of God's grace through Christ, the blood must cover us, penal substitutionary atonement, the book that God's word is our authority, and the new birth that we must be born again in order to enter the kingdom of heaven. And here we see two of those linked together, the words, the book, and the blood. He says, behold the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these things. Words. Those who trample on the book have no right to the blood. Those who throw away the book cannot claim the blood. These two go together. Isn't that interesting, this whole scene with the blood? God seals the covenant with blood. He calls it the blood of the covenant. It is placed on the altar... The place of sacrifice, and it is placed on the people. Thrones slung on the people. They are quite literally, at this point, a blood covered people. And if you would have been there that day, So try to think about, you know, in commentators debate, you know, what's the purpose of the blood? How does the blood function in the minds of the people? How does the blood function here um, in the covenant, in the sealing of the covenant? And and so commentators debate the the nuances there in terms of what exactly the blood is meant to communicate. Uh, But as I was reading all of that, my mind kept going back to Exodus 12. Because if you would have been there that day, if you would have been one of those Israelites on the front row, If you would have had front row seats at at this moment, blood splattering you in the face, having to close your eyes, having to maybe get some of it out of your nose. If you would have been there that day, your mind would have gone straight to the Passover. There's no other place where you would have gone. You would have gone to the Passover. Exodus 12 verse 13, the blood shall be a sign for you. On the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, this is the Lord speaking. When I see the blood, I will pass over you. I will pass over your sins. I, I will see the, the blood from the substitutionary sacrifice. In your place, something died. I will see the blood and pass over you. And no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. For me, the Israelites' minds would have immediately gone to pass over as the covenant is here ratified. And it brings us, this blood, it brings us to the prevailing principle that we find in a fallen world. It brings us all the way back to Genesis 3. If you eat of the tree, you will surely die. It brings us back to the penalty, the consequences of sin being death. And so we read in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 22, Listen to this great overarching principle that stands over a fallen world. By the way, it still stands over this fallen world. And here's the principle. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Unless something dies, there will be no forgiveness. This is substitutionary sacrifice. There must be death. There must be the shedding of blood in order for us to be rescued, in order for us to be forgiven because without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. And let me say to you this morning, your greatest problem is your sin. Your greatest problem is your sin and the brokenness that that creates in your relationship with God. That's the problem with humanity. It's not disease. It's not frustrations of this life. It's not unmet expectations. It's not depression. It's not just generally being down on our luck. It's our sin before a holy God. That is the one great problem for which we need a remedy. That is the one great ailment that we face. If you're not a Christian here this morning. Your greatest problem is that you stand condemned before a holy God, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. And if you die apart from Christ, you will die in your sins and be judged by the Lord. This idea of the shedding of blood for the forgiveness of sins. And this picture in Exodus of the sprinkling of the blood, the throwing of the blood on the people brings us to 1 Peter 1, verse 2. There, Peter speaks of our election. And listen to how he describes the election of the believers to whom he's writing, and by extension to all believers. He writes that our election is according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Okay, we got that. It is in the sanctification of Of the Spirit, okay? And it is for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with His blood. By the way, just a note, there's no way we can accept Jesus as Savior without accepting Him as Lord. Why? Because look at the language here for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with His blood. To embrace the, the sprinkling of the blood means that we submit to him as Lord. The obedience of faith. We, we fall before him. We submit to him. He becomes king at the same time that he becomes savior. This idea that you could have Jesus as your savior but not submit to him as Lord is rubbish. And it's not biblical for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. Blood. But here we see the need to be sprinkled. Matthew chapter 26, verse 28, Jesus says this as he's instituting the Lord's Supper. He says, For this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do you see how these texts all come together as we go all the way back to Exodus 24? Then we come to Christ and his penal substitutionary death on the cross as he is the Lamb of God. His blood is what takes away the sins of the world. As John the Baptist said, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And as Jesus is partaking in the Lord's Supper with his disciples, as he's administering the Lord's Supper to his disciples in this Passover meal, He says, this is my blood of the covenant. The only way that we can have a relationship with God is through the blood of Jesus Christ. The only way that we can have a relationship with God is by believing in what Jesus did at the cross as the one and only means of our sins being forgiven. Putting our trust in him for eternal life. This is the only way. As we think about this sprinkling with the blood, it gives us insight into conversion. So, you know, you might be here this morning, you're thinking through, okay, what does it mean to be saved? What does it mean to be converted? Or you're a child here, you're being raised in a Christian home, and you say, well, I don't know if I'm a Christian yet, or I don't think I'm a Christian yet. Or maybe you're a parent and you're walking through this with your children. You're trying to understand, uh, do they understand the gospel? And and, uh, what, what, what am I looking for? What am I thinking about with regard to their soul as I shepherd their hearts? And I think the insight into conversion that we get here from this passage is this, submitted to the word sprinkled with the blood. That's what it is to be a Christian. It is someone who has submitted, we we get it right here with the covenant, just as they entered into the old covenant, we enter into the new covenant. We submit to the word as we embrace it and hear it, and we are sprinkled with Christ's blood. That is what it means to be a blood-bought, born-again believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. So we've looked at confirmation of the covenant relationship, verses 1 to 8. Now we come to communion with the covenant Lord. Look at verses 9 to 18 as we look at the second half of our passage today. Then Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel went up (coughs) and they saw the God of Israel. There was under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone, like the very heaven for clearness. And he did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. They beheld God and ate and drank. Incredible scene. The Lord said to Moses, come up to me on the mountain and wait there. By the way, this happened just a little bit before the golden calf. And that just shows how ridiculously sinful we are as human beings. God can do an amazing thing. I mean, just fill in the blank. It's not gonna get better than this. He can do an amazing thing in our lives and two days later, we're just right back in sin. That's the folly of our sinfulness and how much we so desperately need to commune with God moment by moment in this life. Left to ourselves, we just fall. We just crumble. I lost my place. And he did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. They beheld God and ate and drank. The Lord said to Moses, Come up to me on the mountain and wait there, that I may give you the tablets of stone with the law and the commandment, which I have written for their instruction. So Moses rose with his assistant Joshua, and Moses went up into the mountain of God. And he said to the elders, Wait here for us until we return to you. And behold, Aaron and Hur are with you. Whoever has a dispute, let him go to them. Then Moses went up on the mountain, and the cloud covered the mountain. The glory of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it six days. And on the seventh day he called to Moses out of the midst of the cloud. Now the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on the top of the mountain in the sight of the people of Israel. Moses entered the cloud and went up on the mountain, and Moses was on the mountain forty days and forty nights." Here, we pick back up with verses 1 to 2. God had told Moses that there are to be three levels of approach. Notice that in the text. It's it's embedded here. There, There are three levels of access, at least at this point, as God is revealing himself, as God is entering into covenant with his people. Three access points. The people at the foot of the mountain must not come up. They have to stay down there. The future high priest, Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, as well as 70 of the elders can come up, but they must not come near. Only Moses can come near. And we read later in the passage, passage that Joshua joins him as an assistant. So here we are uh, confronted with God's holiness. We, we recognize, as we talked at the beginning of the sermon, about God's faithfulness, one of the key attributes of God that we go to and we recognize, uh, but also God's holiness. And sometimes we are so quick to embrace things like God's faithfulness and His kindness and His love and His patience. We love those. But God is also holy. Holy. And his holiness is found in all of those attributes so that there is one great, simple, theologically understood, God. As all of his attributes are packed into every single attribute. God is holy. And here we see the levels of approach telling the people, it is no small thing to come into God's presence. The group that goes up the mountain have the role of representing the entire nation. They are the representatives of Israel. And as such, they participate in a covenant meal that involves communion with God. They see God and he does not strike them dead. They eat and drink with the Lord. It reminded me of Abraham at his tent as the three men come to Abraham's tent. We know that one of them is the Lord and two of them are angels. And he there he, he brings food forward and there's this, this moment of a meal. As God had given the covenant to Abraham, made the promises, and and then now Sarai needs to hear the promises as well. Verse 11, as we read here, and he did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel, they beheld God and ate and drank. God did not strike them dead. That's what it's saying. He invited them into his presence to have communion with him and he gives them the representatives of the people. It is as though all of Israel is there on the mountain communing with God, eating this covenant meal with Yahweh. Now this raises for us an important question as we interpret scripture with scripture. Here we read that they saw God but we need to listen to some other passages as well. So this, this becomes a little challenging because it says here that they saw God and they ate and drank. A little while later in the book of Exodus, we're going to read this in Exodus thirty three twenty. 20. But he said, God said, you cannot see my face, and God says this to Moses, you cannot see my face for man shall not see me and live. So whatever's going on here, it, they did not see God's face, because God clearly says that to Moses, not even Moses is going to see his face, and we know He's going to go up further up the mountain, into the glory cloud and commune with God. Probably one of the major texts in the Bible for this is John 1:18. Listen to this: No one has ever seen God. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. That's talking about Jesus Christ in his incarnation. The Son of God, the Word of God incarnate, has made him known. And then 1 Timothy 6.16 describes God as the one whom no one has ever seen or can see. So, so what in the world do we do with this? I mean, we're, we're being told here that the seven, 70 of these elders go up on the mountain, they're, they're there with Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, and, and Moses, and Joshua, and, and they see God. It says that. They, they saw God, and they ate and drank. And we also see something similar in Genesis thirty two thirty. So Jacob called after he wrestles with God. Jacob wrestles with this man who we know is God. At the end of that, it says, Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, saying, For I have seen God face to face and yet my life has been delivered. Jacob recognized he had wrestled with God himself, the God who had appeared to him when he first left to go to Mesopotamia to find a wife, and escaping his brother Esau, the God who had been with him. This was the same God. I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. So how do we put all of these texts together? The truth is that it is mysterious. And that's not just where you go if you can't explain something, you don't understand something. You can't go there too quickly, right? I mean, there's, there's the propensity to just go there too quickly all the time. This is just so mysterious. But this is. This is one of those that is truly mysterious. And what I mean is this, there is a sense in which no one has ever seen God. And yet, God has appeared to some in Scripture. Both are true. And we've already talked about the angel of the Lord mediating God's presence with his people. The angel of the Lord, in my mind, is key to understanding how both of these things are true. We've encountered this figure who comes to the people. He's there at the burning bush. He's there on Mount Moriah as Abraham takes Isaac, his son, to sacrifice. The angel of the Lord is there we we learn in judges that it is the angel of the lord who brought the people out of egypt i thought yahweh did that yeah the angel of the lord brought the people out of Egypt. He mediates God's presence with his people. And if we are to understand the angel of the Lord as the pre-incarnate Christ, which I do, and many throughout church history have, if we are to understand that the angel of the Lord is the pre-incarnate manifestation of the eternal word and son of God, then John 1.18 begins to move back into the Old Testament more clearly. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, He has made Him known. So, the Son makes the Father known. That's what we're meant to understand. The Son of God makes the Father known. And it is the Spirit of God who allows us to participate in the life of God, who allows us to know God. But the Son makes the Father No, yes, in the incarnation, we know that, of course. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory. The glory is of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. Yes, but not just the incarnation. I think we're meant to understand collectively throughout redemptive history, throughout all of revelatory history, throughout all of biblical history, this principle remains true. The Son makes the Father No. So are we to understand this to be the angel of the Lord? Or are we to understand this to be some veiled impression of the Lord's glory here before the people? It's just mysterious. We don't know. But what we do know is that they see God insofar as they can. And they see his glory. And through that, the covenant is firmly confirmed. One important observation that needs to be made here in Exodus 24 is the fact that the form of God is not emphasized. So notice that the description is not given and they saw God and he had, he had um, this color hair And and, and we saw the way that his legs looked or or anything. There's nothing like that. Or or he, he took the form of this or that. None of that is given here. The emphasis is not even on the form of the Lord. It's on the surroundings. Verse 10, there was under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone, like the very heaven for clearness. In other words, a clear, bright, beautiful, lapis lazuli pavement upon which God manifests his glorious Presence, whatever we are meant to understand about that manifestation. As we finish this passage, there is one word that dominates, and it is mediator. I brought it up earlier in the sermon, mediator. Moses is the great mediator between Yahweh and Israel. He alone, along with his assistant, approaches the presence of God And he leaves the people in the hands of Aaron and Hur. For six days he waits. And on the seventh day he is called into the glory cloud on top of the mountain. To mirror the rhythms of Israel as we think about this six days of work and one day of Sabbath rest. Going all the way back to creation. That same pattern is given here. For six days he waits. (coughs) And on the seventh day he is called into this cloud. And there will be... And there Moses will be for 40 days and 40 nights. This, of course, draws our minds to the true one mediator, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we read that in 1 Timothy 2, verse 5. For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. Jesus. So as we see Moses, we're watching this story unfold and we're getting a principle subtly and and the Israelites are getting this principle in view too, that we need a mediator. We need someone to go before us. We need someone to go between us. And we talked about this at the end of the Ten Commandments when the people, they were so afraid, they were just crumbling in fear. And they said to Moses, you go up to God, we're going to stay down here. That's better. All along, Moses has been the mediator. And that is one of the great principles of Scripture is that we need a mediator. Moses is here a type of Jesus Christ. He's a type of the one who brings us to God. Just as Moses went up the mountain for 40 days and 40 nights and then returned with the tablets of the Ten Commandments, Jesus will be tempted 40 days and 40 nights in the wilderness and then give his sermon on the mount to his disciples. He will lay out what it is to be in covenant with him. He will lay out what it means to be a kingdom citizen as we read the Sermon on the Mount. But there's an important distinction even as we read Matthew's Gospel in relation to this. Unlike Moses, Jesus is both the mediator and the law giver. Notice, when Moses speaks to the people, He always says this, thus says the Lord. The Lord has said, the Lord has said, the Lord has said. And what does Jesus say repeatedly in the Sermon on the Mount? Truly, truly, I say to you. Truly, truly, I say to you. Truly, truly, you can count on this. This is absolutely perfect word coming from the perfect God. Jesus is not merely the mediator. He is also the God who gives the truth. He himself is the truth. Deuteronomy chapter 18 verse 15 anticipates this one greater than Moses. As Moses prophesies, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you and from your your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. Jesus is the prophet. He's the priest. And he is the king. And he is Yahweh himself. He is the true mediator. Before we finish this morning, I just want to touch on a few implications for us as we come away from this second portion of the text, communion with the covenant Lord. So here, just three implications for us as we walk away from this text this morning. So first, <clears throat> here we have, I think, a commission to celebrate the Lord's Supper as a covenant meal. There may be many things going on in your mind as you come forward for the Lord's Supper. Uh, it, it, there's a lot of facets to it. There's a, a, a lot of aspects as we understand the beauty and the glory of the Lord's Supper. But at the core of what the Lord's Supper is, as we read earlier from Matthew 26, is this idea that it is a covenant meal. As we come forward and partake of the Lord's Supper, we are remembering the fact that God, through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, has entered into covenant with us by that blood. We've heard the word of the gospel. We have said, yes, Lord, all that I hear, I will do. And we have been sprinkled with the blood of Christ. We've been covered with the blood of the Savior. And so as we come forward this morning, we celebrate, we rejoice in the fact that we have been brought into this covenant with God. A second implication is that we must rejoice in the new covenant. We are in the new covenant covenant. What we are reading here is the old covenant. And what do we find with the old covenant? That they are to stand far off. Only Moses goes up to enter into the glory cloud to be present with the Lord. In the new covenant, not only is the veil torn and we enter into the holiest place, but also God himself enters into us as the spirit of God indwells us, the spirit of the resurrected, exalted Christ. So we are no longer far off, but we come near by the blood of Christ. And the Lord's Supper itself reminds us of this reality, that we're not far from God, that any moment of the day, in all of our stresses, going back to that idea, in all of the the turmoil of our lives, we call out to God and we are in his presence. He dwells within us. He is not far away. And then finally, notice God's fiery presence on the mountain. The people are still down on the ground, they're looking up, and they're still very happy that they made the decision to tell Moses that he go up and they stay far back. Why? Because there's like a nuclear bomb going off on top of Mount Sinai. This blazing, consuming fire. God's fiery presence on the mountain reminds us to maintain our reverence towards God in all of our relating to Him, in all of our drawing near to Him, in all of our being close to Him. We find this emphasis at the end of Hebrews 12. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. He didn't move from being a fire to a teddy bear. He's still a fire. God is still a consuming fire. In his supremacy, in his holiness, in his glory, he purifies us of sin. To know God is to be being purified From sin. It is to more and more constantly being transformed into the likeness of his perfect Son. And as we read here, let us offer God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. Let me tell you what that means for the readers of Hebrews and and for us this morning. It means that we can offer to God unacceptable worship. We can offer to God worship that he does not accept, worship that is not right, that is not in spirit and truth. We can worship God irreverently and we can worship God not in a state of awe. And to that attitude, to that pattern of behavior, we are told to remember that God is a consuming fire. Remember the glory of the Lord. Remember his holiness and all that that calls us to in daily life. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for how faithful you have been to give us your word. And Lord, even for your faithfulness and your providence this morning as you promise to grow us, as you promise to keep us, We recognize that you do that by means of your word. You do that by waking us up on the, on the Lord's day and bringing us in your providence to be with God's people, to hear your scripture read and taught, to sing your praises so that our hearts will be lifted up out of the muck of the world and they'll be brought up to divine things so that we can set our mind on the things above where Christ is as Paul tells the Colossians. Lord, help us to set our minds on things above. And Lord, as we think about the difference between the believer and the unbeliever laid out in Romans 8, we're grateful, God, that we now have minds that are set on the Spirit and live according to the Spirit and not according to the flesh. God, we pray that you would help us to be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. We pray that we would walk in holiness this week, that we would walk in joy, and Lord, that we would consider all that you have done through Jesus to bring us into covenant with yourself. Thank you now for the Lord's Supper. Would it be celebrated reverently and in a state of awe, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.